Hey, podcast listener. Are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. You should be thinking succession planning the day you bring in a client because someday you're going to get to a finish line and you'll either have done one of two things. You'll either have developed people under you who will buy you out or you'll have to call 1-800-UPSTREAM. Welcome to the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. Waiting until you're cooked to decide it's time to sell your practice is a guaranteed way to fetch a low price for what you've spent a lifetime building. If you want to optimize the sale price of your business, it takes years of advanced planning. But too many CPAs are missing out on the money they could have earned had they known what steps to take and what to implement in order to fetch an attractive sale price. Here to talk with me today about how to set your CPA firm up to be highly attractive when you're ready to sell it is Alan Colton. Alan is the CEO of Colton Consulting Group. In addition to receiving countless awards, accolades, and recognition for his thought leadership in the accounting profession, Alan has facilitated more than 150 M&A deals in the accounting profession over the last decade, including more than 50% of the largest M&A deals in the space. Alan, welcome to the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast. Geraldine, thank you for having me. It's great to hear uh, to be here. I've heard so many good things about your show, if I can call it that. And uh, to be on this side of it is so exciting. Uh, happy to have you, and you're quite kind. So we're talking today about what you can do in your firm to make it maximally attractive at sales time, how best to prepare, what factors influence sale price, and what kind of multiples CPAs can expect at the time of sale. But before we jump in, Give listeners, if you would, the condensed version. How did you arrive at the position you're currently in? I can tell you this. I didn't sign up for it. Uh, in 1980, which is when I started as an accountant, we started a firm in Chicago and uh, had a lot of success. We grew it from uh, zero to almost 50 million by 1998. And uh, not knowing better, uh, one day I saw a little blurb that uh, H&R Block, who I'm sure you're familiar with, wanted to go from one end of the food chain to the other end. And they wanted to go out and get big accounting firms to acquire. And uh, not knowing better, I called the 800 number at H&R Block in Kansas City. The next thing I knew, I was talking to Frank Salazzoni, the CEO of the company. And 90 days later, we sold our firm. Since that time, which is now 23 years, I had been working full-time as a consultant to accounting firms, doing things like strategic planning, facilitating retreats, helping with succession, helping with growth, helping with human capital, uh, helping with compensation, governance, uh, partner issues, as we like to call them. 
Uh, and M&A has just come out of the woodwork. And I think it has to do with the following. In 1990, 2% of college graduates were accountants. By the year 2000, that number dropped to 1%, a 50% drop in those entering the accounting profession. And you may say, well, what does that have to do with 2021, year we're in? What it means is a lot of those people today would be 30 and 40-year-olds, and they're not there. And what you have is 45,000 CPA firms, many of whom are well-populated with baby boomers you know, in their 50s or 60s. But when you're looking for young talent in the 30 or 40 range, not as much as you would think. Ironically, you go to the next generation in many firms, the young kids, that's where there's a lot of talent. So there's a succession issue, and that has been why M&A has become so prevalent in our profession. Oh, interesting. Okay. Tell us what else you're seeing out there in addition to the succession issue it, when it comes to buying and selling CPA firms. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. So, so there's two kinds of deals going on today. There are those where someone started a business or a group of people started a business and they're beginning to age or they're just burning out or they want to do something different with their life. And they're looking at the younger group that's going to be there and saying, can they buy us out? Can they afford to buy us out? Do they want to buy us out? Do they want to take on the financial risks and put their capital back in the business? Some do, many don't. Uh, a lot of people in the accounting profession love practicing their trade. They like being accountants. They like serving clients. They like being technical. That excites them. I get that. But there's a good number of them that don't want the pressure, the risk, the uncertainty, the unpredictability of owning a business. So succession is clearly one of those reasons why M&A is really a frenzy today. But the second one has really come about in the last decade. And that's strategic. Uh, and what is strategic? It's technology. It's the fact that every day we wake up, there's a bot that can now do what used to be 200 man hours. There's an ability to take uh, work and send it uh, to other countries and get it done for one fourth the labor wage. There's efficiencies and uh, skill sets that uh, today you don't have to be an accountant anymore. Uh, you know, an interesting statistic I was just reading this morning, 24% uh, of new hires in public accounting are not accountants. Let's just think about that. One in That's four. Bad. Yeah. And, and, you know, I said, what, what are they? Well, it's um, STEM, science, uh, technology, engineering, and math majors. We can teach you the entry-level mundane stuff, but we're going we're gonna to do you a favor. We're going to actually outsource that work or do it through a bot or do it so you can get thrown in the fire right away at a higher level doing more interesting type work. Um, so you have strategic issues, commoditization of compliance work. Compliance work is being done more and more by technology. And if firms keep doing exactly what they're doing, they may have a declining asset, a declining revenue base. So, you know, the uproar is how do we get into client accounting services? How do we get into outsourcing? How do we get into advisory and consulting things? That has stimulated a lot of firms to do M&A because, as you know, whenever you do something new, you're either going to build it, buy it, <laughs> or do nothing. <laughs> 
So the, the capital requirement has caused a lot of firms, the changing marketplace, the wants and needs of clients, that caused firms to say, I think we'd be better off being part of a bigger firm. Okay. What I think you're saying is that because of the shifting nature of the accounting profession right now, given technology, and because of the capital requirements of that, and because of the risk and all the rest, that some accounting firms are saying, we'd be better off if we got acquired. Is the bigger firm just buying the smaller firm out wholesale and then shifting them, shifting those clients over? Yeah. Like, what's happening? So the, the, it's been said that the best merger a bigger firm can do today and you know bigger could be a three million dollar firm acquiring a one million dollar firm it could be a much 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 bigger firm so it's all relative but uh the the leader of the firm said recently that the best kind of MA deal they could do would be one where they had 50 staff and no clients they said whoa what's up with that i thought you wanted to get to the clients now what firms are realizing is we call it the accounting business, the tax business. It's really the people business. And to have a sustainable business, you have to repopulate every decade four kinds of talent bases. Leadership, people to run the business, make decisions, hold people accountable. Rainmaking. In this business, if you don't grow, you die a slow death. Why? Because if you want to recruit and retain the best in talent, you know, they have a gun to your head because they can go to 12 different places and they will. So you have to grow enough to pay a five to 8% wage increase every year, maybe more depending on the market you're in. And if you don't grow, where does that, you have to pay them. So where does it come out of? It comes out of owner's profitability, owner's compensation. So growing the business is number two. Number three is owning the client. That means that the client sees you as their trusted business advisor, uh, their impact player that helps them to grow their business, solve their problems. And the last one is technical. And technical is the ability to actually do the work that the client engages us to do and to do it with quality and to do it with efficiency that we can actually turn a profit. All four of those pillars, leadership, rainmaking, client relationships, and technical have to be in place. Think of like a big depth chart and you have to keep re replenishing it. Now, if you're a sole practitioner, as we call it, a jack of all trades, you sort of do all of those things. You know, as one sole practitioner said to me last week, uh, it's like it's like the game you play at the state fair called whack-a-mole. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you hit one thing and something else pops and something else yeah. pops. And that's the life we sign up for. Yeah, so it's, it, it's succession because it's a people business. And what the acquirer wants is talent, clients they can get. They have that growth engine working pretty well. Their limiting factor is the ability to get the work done. Bringing it in the door, very easy. Getting it done, now that's a challenge. Let's take this over to the, the firm owner side because they're the ones that are trying to set themselves up for optimal sale price at the time of sale. And I have a few clients who are in their early 50s and they're thinking to themselves, you know, they're starting to see the horizon for when they no longer want to be a practicing CPA. Mm -hmm. And they put their heart and soul into growing their business and they don't want to get 0.8x for it. And they're trying to understand how do I optimize, how do I set myself up now? What do I need to be doing right now in order to fetch an attractive sale price at the time of sale? So 
when you're working with a firm and they're selling and they're all of a sudden learning all the stuff that they wish they had known years earlier, what are those things that they wish they had known? The buyer is looking and saying, if the seller is gone, because sometimes it's not an acquisition, it's a merger. They're joining the bigger firm, but they still have runway. They just want more depth and resources. They want some of the administrative crap taken away from them. They want to practice their trade. They want to bring in business, serve clients, grow people. And a lot of times, especially in one to two and $3 million firms, they will tell me that they spend too much time working on the business, you know, and not enough time in the business. They love working in the business, but now because they have a real business, they spend a lot of administrative non-billable time. In a bigger firm, they lift that away and they let you do what you do well. But okay, what, so hold on. Let me just check in here because I want to clarify something. They say that they spend time more time than they wish working on the business rather than in because what they enjoy is working in, but as a business owner, you got to work on and they want to go back to working in. Yes, this is not what I signed up for. Okay. You know, I thought it would be fun and now it's uh, it's a lot of hours. But now I manage people and that's not what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, it's not my highest and best use of time. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, the, the other, yeah, so early on when I'm meeting with firms when they're starting, I said, you need to decide what kind of business you want to be. And I said, there's two paths. Number one, it's all about you. And what that means is everything clears for you. The clients don't do anything without checking out with you. They rely completely on you. Uh, you end up doing some days very high-level work called brain and heart surgery, and other days very routine, basic things that surely someone at a lower rate could be doing. You're this generalist. You're this jack-of-all-trades. The business is very dependent on you. The other side, and the other side of the house is the best thing you can do is bring in a client and hand it off to someone else in your organization and then go out and get the next client, growing a business, staying out of the factory, staying out of the production. So I always challenge people to say, you know, what is it you're really good at? What, you, what are you passionate? And they always say, what's the right answer? I go, there isn't a right answer. It's, it's what, what are you good at? You know, what's your calling? And what do you want to do? And based on that, that'll determine sort of the kind of business you have. Uh, a lot of individuals start a business. They sort of take in all the work. They get some people to help at lower levels. But at the end of the day, the high level stuff is all on them. And, you know, they may bill clients up to 1,500 hours, 1,800 hours a year. They may work total hours of 3,000 because they've got to, you know, do all the administrative things that go with it. And others would say, no, we're going to build what we call a leverage model. We're going to have a group that brings it in. We're going to have a group of managers that's going to take it. They're going to have people that actually do the work. And we're going to leverage, if you will. So we're, for each owner, we're going to have a lot of people doing the work, you know, sort of like a pyramid. Others would say, no, it's, it's sort of going to be you know, one-on-one versus 10 people for every individual owner. Again, people can be wildly successful in any pathway. But when it comes the time to monetize the business, the acquirer is looking closely and saying, if that individual is gone, can we keep everything? Or can we deliver the kind of service that it, that individual, you know, that individual has a red phone on their desk. 
And when the client calls, that's the red phone that lights up and they're always there. Sometimes in a bigger firm, now you're one of many clients and you may feel there's a drop off in client satisfaction, client service. So I like to say to firms, listen, in business, nothing is forever. You should be thinking succession planning the day you bring in a client because someday you're going to get to a finish line and you'll either have done one of two things. You'll either have developed people under view who will buy you out or you'll have to call 1-800-UPSTREAM. So it, it would sure seem to me like the buyer, the value of the, the firm that they're buying would be much greater if the current firm owner wasn't required to be around. And yet I think a lot of CPAs get stuck because they hate to let go of things and don't want to delegate. And not unique to CPAs, right? This is universal for business owners. Hard to delegate, hard to find the right staff to do it, train them, all the rest. And so the business owner, the CPA ends up shouldering a far bigger burden than, than is ideal. And so the acquirer looks at that and goes, hmm, okay, you know, what's going to happen, like you say, with can we keep this all rolling without the firm owner in the way? If the listener is listening going, hmm, I think that might be my firm. If I go away, a lot of the business goes away, then what? What we would say to those people is let's plan three years to five years before you're done. Let's join in a, a, a bigger firm and let's use their talent to help transition your client work and your client relationships. Um, what's not a cool thing is someone will call me and say, I want to sell the company and I want to be out of here in six months. I'm like, you know, we can do that, but it's going to put the buyer at risk because a lot of people are dependent on you and we won't have enough time to retain the business. Uh, for all intents and purposes, you could have died <laughs> and we were the successor firm and we're at a huge disadvantage to try to keep all that business. So in a perfect world, I always say, Know your timeline of how long you want to do what you do. And when you think you're coming up on two to three, five years, because a lot of those people can't have a boss. You know, they've been, they've been a boss forever. So we know that uh, things can work well for a couple of years, but we have to try to find the right culture where they say, you can come join us and you're still not going to have a boss. Because in our organization, we're highly entrepreneurial. We're a byproduct of a lot of smaller firms who merged in, and you should go talk to them. And I think what you're going to find out is 95% of what you were doing before the deal is the same 95%. It's the good 95% you'll be doing after the deal. And keep doing what you do, grow the business, serve the clients, grow our people, help develop our people. You know, you'll have a new time and billing system. You'll have a new tax or accounting software. Uh, we'll have some firm policies. You have to get billing out on time. You have to record your time. You can't scream at the staff. Um, you know, there's some, I'd call them good hygiene things that maybe you didn't have great hygiene where you were. Well, now you've been a big organization. You may have to have that. But um, there are a lot of really good larger firms that have a culture as good or better than the one we know. And we worry about our people sometimes. Will our people be happy? They've got a really good thing here. So um, again, it can be a merger where you join, you stay and you continue working. 
you know, there's some firms that don't have, Geraldine, they don't have mandatory retirement. And there are some smaller firms that want to work forever. You know, I always say it's about replacing the circle. What are you going to do? Right now, you're spending 60 hours a week doing this, 50 weeks a year, 3,000 hours. What are you going to do? And they say, oh, I, was, I want to take up, I want to golf. I go, okay, that's one. You need seven vices. And they can't, and they can't all involve your body because <laughs> at some point, the, the body won't be able to do all those things. So I say to them, rather than have such a hard stop, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gradually phase down the hours you're working, transferring some of the work. We're going to actually get you to part-time. And then eventually, when, you're, when you make that move, to move out, you can do it. Or in certain firms, you can continue working part-time. You know, I work with practitioners that are in their 70s and 80s, and they come into the office a couple days a week. And they actually are productive. It's getting in your head. You know, the biggest sin in, in accountants have, because they bill for time, is they're so busy being busy, they sometimes can't think of long-term planning. I, I talk to them, and long-term planning is, uh, I don't know, where am I going? What am I doing this weekend? <laughs> where am I going for lunch tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. It, being busy is very much a thing in this space and is a trap or a crutch, depending on how you want to look at it. You touched on earlier about the four factors, and one of the questions I had queued up was, you know, what most influences sale price? Is it? Can you remind us of the four things that you mentioned? Four skill sets in running an accounting business: leadership. You know, leadership sets the tone. They set the culture. They have the ability to recruit talent. The second is the ability to grow it, to win clients. The third element is. We call it client relationships, but it's really owning the client. It's being that, you know, the overused term, the trusted advisor. You know, I say, I say to accountants, being trusted is, it's just a given. If they don't trust you, they're not going to use you. So that's sort of dated. We have to migrate from being the trusted advisor to the most valuable advisor. Anytime they have a major issue, they're calling 1-800-Geraldine. They know that they're not going to make a major decision without checking in with you, not renting the client, owning the client. The fourth one is technical. Can we actually get the work done that we've now brought in? And, um, and we never should take that for granted. We need wicked smart people to perform that work. Different skill than owning the client, different skill than bringing business in, different skill than running the business. We have to repopulate. It's like a depth chart on a football team. We have to repopulate those positions every decade. Okay. So the reason that I asked you to revisit those four is because what I thought the answer was going to be was, you know, annual revenue, number of clients, profit per client, and all these metrics. But instead, you're telling me it's these other four pillars. So let's look at it this way. We're looking at the strategic and cultural fit when I talk about those four things. And then there else to be the financial fit. So we are looking at size of clients. We're looking at the profitability of the clients, the type of work we do. We're looking at what we'll call untapped uh, revenue. You know, uh, hey, what's the old saying? If, if a client buys one thing from you, there's a 60% chance of still having the client seven years from now. If they buy two, it jumps to 80. And if it, you know, three, it jumps to 90%. So are there other services that the bigger firm can provide 
that the smaller firm can't provide untapped revenue. And the other thing we're looking at is scalability. Are there things, you know, we're a $6 million accounting firm. We do accounting tax and audit, but we don't do any client accounting services. We don't do any outsourced technology. We don't do any wealth advisory. And now we meet a firm that's a one or $2 million firm. That's what they do. And it's almost like, think about the trucks on the highway. We could take what they do, put it on our trucks, and we could char- do the toll charge <laughs> every time we drive throughout the country because clients are begging us for these services. Okay. The hot, sexy services that, you know, I always use this, Geraldine. I say a type one service is a service that a client doesn't want but needs. If I'm your accountant, I do a tax return for you. I don't think you'll ever say to me, you know, it's April 16th, Alan. I don't know if I can wait 364 more days for that exciting experience. You know, that that would be a weird client, right? Uh, When a bank says you have to have an audited financial statement, nobody wants an audited financial statement. It costs three times a compiled financial statement. But if you don't do it, the bank won't make the loan. The bonding or surety won't you know, make the construction loan. So we as a profession have been offering a lot of what I'll call type one services for 150 years. We have the, fran- we have the franchise on offering things clients don't want, but need, <laughs> and we make a living. But the smart firms have said there's life beyond. We're going to do type two services, services that clients want and need. And actually we'll say, thank you, pay the full rate and refer other happy clients to you. If I impact your business, Geraldine, and come up with an idea on how to grow it, how to make more money, solve one of the problems that keep you up at night, that is worth 10 times my doing, crunching your numbers and doing a tax return. And the the marketplace has woke up and said, I'll pay you whatever for a type two. But on type one, you know, I sort of want the lowest price because it's all the same. Well, I would say it's not the marketplace that's woken up. It's the CPAs who are starting to wake up. The marketplace was always there. Yes, good point. And the CPAs are going, oh, <laughs> right. Oh, I could sell this for 10 times more. Okay, great. Okay. So uh, just to be clear, is type two the hot and sexy or was there a type three? Uh, well, we, we joke. So type two is the hot and sexy. Type three would be, that's a service the client wants, but we don't have the expertise internally to do it. So what you're seeing more today is, it's a service that a client wants and needs. We don't have the expertise, so we're going to partner with a third party. We're going to form a strategic alliance. We're going to form an alliance with a wealth management company and get paid a fee for referring clients to manage their assets. We don't do uh, outsourcing in the uh, uh, accounting or HR area, but we're going to partner with a third party. Uh, we don't provide cybersecurity. We're going to partner with a firm that does. So I've said a, a, a great business model is you don't have to own all these things, but you have to be you have to be in the business of helping your clients with their business and financial problems, whatever they may be. And if we can't solve their problem, someone else will. That's how we lose a client because there's some service we can't provide. Someone does it, they hit it out of the park, and then they come back and say, "Well, if you thought we were good on that very narrow thing." Give us a chance at all your work. And now we've lost the client. And, and you know, our mantra has to be, we're never going to lose a client because of a service we could have done ourselves or we could have aligned with some third party to deliver. Okay. So 
bring it, bring this back to value of company at sale time. What I think you're saying is that the more you do type two and type three services already, the more valuable it's going to appear to a buyer. Is that, am I on that or something slightly, something different? Yeah. I mean, you know, we just um, did a transaction with a uh, $26 million firm last week in Bellevue, Washington, you know, home of Microsoft, Amazon. I, I would tell you because that was Seattle, that that's a hot market. Seattle, Austin, Nashville, Dallas, Houston, Miami, South Florida, Washington, D.C. You know, there's certain markets in the country that are on fire. Firms want to be there. So there's a premium, just dumb luck. I'm in the right, the right market. Uh, the second one is if we have what we call high EBITDA, uh, high profitability, we've got a really profitable mousetrap. We're looking at that. The third one is what's high. Give us like give us a range of high. The the, the profession today, it it we all we used to all be commingled goods. We all made two, three, four hundred, four hundred thousand was the high performer. Two hundred thousand maybe was the lower group. Three hundred thousand was like an average income. Twenty years later, um, I would tell you that today the new standard is I think bottom quartile is ownership compensation of 250,000 or less. The third quartile is probably 250,000 to 500,000. The third quadrant is 500,000 to 750,000. And the fourth quadrant is probably 700,000, well up into over a million dollars per owner. What, what's happened is, I don't wanna suggest it's the haves and the have nots, but what used to be an industry where essentially we all made the same money. We have seen the, as accountant, accounting firms have become more like businesses. Some have become really well-run businesses and they've figured out the people side of the business and the strategic side. Um, you know, when, when owners say to me, I'm billing 1,500, 1,800 hours a year, I go, who has, who has time to run the business? And they say to me, oh, I do it on weekends when I have time. And I said, do you realize that there are other firms out there that they have people, that's what they do. They focus on recruiting and retaining talent. They focus on product development. They focus on client satisfaction. They focus on innovation. They focus on creating efficiencies through technology. They focus on strategic partnerships. You know, and people go, wow, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, I just don't have time to do that. <laughs> so so the, the, the stretch, the gap, has really become a have and have not industry. Obviously, the more you're making, the more profitability that the acquirer is receiving, and they'll pay a multiple for that profitability. You know, in today's world, a lot of firms will pay seven times the EBITDA, the, the profit that you can hand off to the acquirer. Keep, keep going on this, because this is the part of the conversation that everybody's waiting to get to. Is like, what's the multiple? Yeah, so, so I, and I hope I'm not raining on the parade, but the question I've been asked for decades is, what is the multiple? And I always answer the same way. It depends. If you are a high-performing firm and check the box, you know, on the marriage checklist of a lot of these things, you're going to have a multiple that's off the chart. What's off the charts, like over 10? Um, I, I would say that 10 would be the highest. Uh, I would say more in that seven to seven and a half range. Uh -huh. But, you know, a lot of times firms want to equate it to revenue, a multiple of revenue. 
So I would say, you know, um, it's not unthinkable that it couldn't be one and a half times revenue. Uh, if you were going to ask me what's the biggest one I've ever done, it was two times revenue. But you have to have a lot of these things going your way. You have to you have to check a lot of the boxes. Gotcha. So, you know, I'm not trying to evade the question, but it's, if you're a high-performing firm, the multiple, you know, can be well over one times revenue. If you sort of are not that exciting a firm and you sort of milk it dry and there's not a lot of talent and the margins are really low on the clients and you continue, continually churn clients and you haven't grown and you're not an attractive market, good luck with that. <laughs> like, what's the good luck with that? Is that like 0.8, um, 0.5? Well, what the, it's a great question. What they'll do is typically pay you over five years a percentage of what they retain. So if you've got a $2 million business, I would say, listen, I'm going to give you 20% of the cash collections of the clients that stay over the next five years. And, you know, the upside of that is if we can sell a lot of other services to those clients, you'll get way more than one times revenue because you'll get 20% of a much bigger number. However, if there's no brand loyalty and these are just sort of price shoppers, and you were the recipient of the, they used you because you were the cheapest price and they don't value value <laughs> and other services, we probably won't retain a lot of that because we may raise prices and clients may still want the cheapest price. So where's the, where's the more risky option in terms of the five-year buyout versus the acquisition straight up versus the merger? What's, the, what's riskiest and what's safest? I think the safest is to command a dollar amount at closing, knowing that you've unlocked something. And then it's okay to have some, you know, incentives based on retention. I might not go out five years. Maybe I'd say, look, I'll stay on for three years. If I'm here for three years, that's a great insurance policy to the buyer that I'm going to connect the dots. I'm going to connect your people to my clients and I'm going to do it over three years. In the first year, I'm going to say to the new person, come to all the meetings, get to learn the client. I'm still driving the ship. In the second year, I'm going to say, when we go visit Geraldine, these are the five things you're going to talk to her about. These are the five things I'm going to talk. She needs to see you in action. I'll still be there in case you get stuck. But we got to start convincing Geraldine. Remember, like you're in good hands with Allstate. You're in good hands with the newbie. Year three. It's like my farewell party. I'll come to the meeting, but you're leading the meeting. You are now owning the client relationship. I'm just there if you need help. I'm there if there's a historical question. Well, you know, when we did your estate plan 15 years ago, don't you remember we had this issue? That's why this is here today. And eventually I fade into the, into the sunset. I, bec- I become Mr. or Miss Irrelevant. That's a good thing. Let's talk about, you've talked about billing a lot which I realize is endemic and is starting to change, but is not the majority or the norm yet um, to be doing value billing or definitely not subscription billing or subscription pricing. Um, what happens if a firm is fully converted to value pricing? Is, does that, how does that impact things? So I would say if it's more in the technology space and you have maintenance agreements and things like that, that's fabulous. You know, that's an annuity for life. That's really good. If you aren't doing it in the accounting or tax space, um, 
I think the verdict is still out a little bit uh, in terms of, uh, you know, even a contractor uh, tracks time along the way. They have a budget and they know the time they're spending. Sometimes people say to me, we don't keep timesheets. And I go, that's crazy. I said, you can still bill for value, but don't you want to at least know what your real time is? So you know when you bill for value or that you're actually turning a profit. I said, and how do you know which workers are sort of, you know, working really hard and which ones aren't? There's nothing, there's no log to look at anymore. My, you know, my accounting firm, they sent me something a couple of years ago. They changed the engagement letter. They used to bill me for, you know, time, you know, and I guess I could argue the more inefficient they were, the more time they were going to bill me. But they said something so profound. They said, going forward, we're going to bill you for the, uh, for either the value we deliver or the time we accumulate to service you. If we end up accumulating too much time and it doesn't meet the value, we'll write it off. But if we come up with some tax planning idea that saves you $500,000, we're giving you the heads up. We're probably going to take a percentage of that. And I read that and I said, wow, thank God. Where have you been my whole life? That's what I pay you for is to be an impact player. I can go down the street to H&R Block to get a tax return done. I can use TurboTax to get that done. I want someone who's going to be creative, you know, think out of the box and help do some great planning ideas for me. Yeah, there's a lot to say just in that piece alone. <laughs> so that's value. Let's talk about subscription. There's subscription pricing that is monthly recurring revenue that's still a delivery of services. What I don't see much of, if anything yet, and if there's a listener listening who knows someone who's doing this, please send them my way. Um, subscription to knowledge, right? An accounting firm who has is has a knowledge base that you can subscribe to in the same way that you would subscribe to Netflix and have access to all of their um, movies. Have you transacted on a business that has the subscription revenue model, either services or knowledge? I, I, I have, and I'm seeing more of it. It was interesting with when COVID hit, we all thought that technology and consulting practices were going to wipe out. And what we found out is a lot of the ones that had subscription-based or annuity-based services uh, were doing fine. So uh, the, I think the intent should always be you should go from delivering a, uh, we call it a one-trick pony, a consulting project to converting it into something that is annuity-based, service-based. So yeah, uh, many, many firms today uh, have done that. You know, you see it more in certain industries. I'll see it in healthcare. I'll see it in banking. But, you know, it's, it's really not limited by industry. To answer your question on the acquirer, the acquirer obviously puts a bigger multiple on annuity work versus one-shot consulting. How much bigger? Ballpark. Uh, I would say substantial, probably three times greater. Oh. You know, I mean, I, you know, yeah, when I'm looking at things, um, I value annuity work at three times. I value one-shot work at one times. Why? You have to go out and resell it every year, typically to a new customer or client. So the best mousetrap in the world is to build maintenance agreements. It's to build continuing revenue. Um, and, and the way you do that is you convince a client or a customer that um, you know, you've developed the thought leadership, you've developed the software, you've developed the technology. Um, we will do this automatically for you every year, and we will give you an exception report. If we're comparing you as a best practice to others in your industry, 
if we're looking at the efficiency and the stated metrics that you want to you know, achieve, uh, we, we will monitor and measure these things for you and give you a tailored report every year that says how well you're trending, how well you're doing. And if we're really good, we'll do it and we'll compare you to a peer group of other companies in your industry. When, when you're doing that, um, you're, you're playing in the big leagues. Okay. You know, and then the client isn't going to even ask you on the pricing what it costs. Because the value is so tremendous. Which is what you want. Then your sales conversations get so easy and you're both winning. We love that kind of relationship. So last question here, because we both have something to jump to. If you were challenged to sell a firm for a 20, a multiple of 20 EBITDA, what would you do? Uh, I would say, I'm sorry, but I can't deliver on that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I will tell you, um, I've worked a bit in the PE space as they've entered the accounting and consulting. I've seen that number move to 10, but I've never seen it go beyond that. What would it take to get it to go beyond that? I think you would have to have something so perfected in an industry or service line and you, and you figured it out in your market and it was leaps and bounds ahead of anything else anyone was doing. And we saw it and we said, if we can put this on our trucks in our 40 markets and, and take this national with our resources and capital, that's probably where you could command a number well in excess of a, of a 10 multiple. Because they would see whatever that is, you know, they'd see that $8 million business and they'd realize they could turn it into $80 million. It'd have to be something pretty special. Well, we'll work on it. We're always up for a challenge around here. (laughs) Alan Colton, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thanks, Geraldine. It was a pleasure to work with you. My takeaway from this episode is, if you're going to pour your heart and soul into your business for years, you may as well do your level best to build it in such a way that it commands a high sale price when you're ready to step over the finish line. If you want a high multiple, as Alan said, perfect a service line in a narrow market that's leaps and bounds beyond what anyone else is doing that a buyer could take national and you could command in excess of 10x EBITDA. If you want to see what opportunities might be before you that you haven't been able to see because you've been buried under stacks of tax and you're not sure where to start, schedule a single strategy session with me. And in less time than it takes for you to get ready in the morning, you can have a clear sense of what direction to take your business in to put it in a more valuable position. Learn more about this and other ways to work with me by going to my website, shethinksbigcoaching.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down a 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.